this is a recording made in the chapter of the open book and is number one of a series entitled Ye See Your Calling. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture and so those of you who are listening, if you care to join us, will you read together with us the first chapter of the first epistle to the Corinthians. We are calling this little series of studies, uh, putting a question mark after it, you see your calling. And we are going to ask one another, do we? And why should we? And uh, what are the consequences if we do? And what are the consequences if we get mixed and muddled? And of course if we go on like that, we begin to say, well there must be some reason why we should appreciate our calling. There's a lot of passages, many passages you can collect together where a person's name is called. And the fact that it's not merely named but he's called by name is suggestive. When Adam was given the opportunity to consider the dominion that were put under him, the animals were brought before him, Whatsoever he called them, that was the name thereof. Well, that looks as though the calling and the name were suggestive of a meaning. You can't think that he just called them some peculiar sound and it had no meaning. Then when we come to the New Testament, of course, at the birth of Christ, thou shalt call his name Jesus. For, for, he shall save his people from their sin. That's the meaning of the word Jesus. And then we get a call was made to the marriage supper of the king's uh, uh, son's marriage supper. So the call is also not giving you a name or suggesting a character, but it's giving you an invitation. And it's suggestive in that very passage that there's no possibility of gate crashing into any one of the callings of God. You remember when the parable is over and they've gone out into the highways and gathered so that the wedding should be furnished with guests? There follows a sequel. There was a man there who had not a wedding garment. And the king said to him, friend, how comest thou in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. He was cast out. So you see, the call is important because if you haven't received the call, you can never go in, as it were, by that door. So that if we ask one another, you see, you're calling, brethren, we're doing a good turn. Because if we're not sure, we've got an opportunity to let the word of God teach us. Or again, you, do, you remember the, um, the blessed fact that it says he calls his own sheep by name. Now that doesn't really mean to say that he just calls them by name and forgets them. But it means to say he never forgets them. He remembers them. And I think one of the most touching pieces in the whole Gospel of John is on that resurrection morning. He said unto her, Mary, the risen Christ, he used her name in tones that she recognized. She immediately said, Rabboni, my master. And so we have the emphasis upon the fact that they are his, personally. 
That is, of course, would be better understood in the days when Christ was here. And uh, it's been remarked on those who visit Palestine within our own day, how the shepherd still calls his sheep by name. And Miss Bath, whom some of you may remember, she's now fallen asleep in Christ, but she was out in Palestine, and I think she was she tried the experiment, but it didn't work. The Syrian shepherd, he called at one sheep out and he came trotting to it. And she did her utmost to imitate it. Bah! Took no notice. Some of those silly sheep are a lot more, as it were, wise than some of us. Because a stranger will they not follow. And then I was told by Mrs. Billington, whom we know, that when they were out in Palestine, the shepherd told them that it was because he took the lamb and he cuddled it up within his own great coat that the lamb and the man was of the same identical a smell and they knew, they followed. So there's an intimacy about this calling, you see. And then there's a responsibility with regard to it. Our Saviour rebuked some of his disciples. He said, you call me Master and Lord. And so I am. But what's the consequence? So you see a calling there is recognising some responsibility. And then, of course, we've got that one that we remember so much in the book of Job, after weighing over, if a man die, shall he live again? And at last he comes right out with it, Thou shalt call, and I will answer thee, thou wilt have respect unto the work of thine hands. There's something in this emphasis upon the fact that the calling comes so many, many times in the New Testament. Now, I dare say, you were noticing as we read this 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Will you just glimpse again at that chapter before we go further? The second word in in the uh, passage before us is the word called. Paul called to be an apostle. That's an important thought. He's telling you. He says, I'm not an apostle that simply said to myself, I think I'll go in for the ministry. He said, I would have avoided it if I could. I fought against it. I said, I'm not worthy. I said, all sorts of things. But he called me. When he calls, I follow. I have have to respond. I'm a called apostle. This was his calling. And then he says, uh, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them which are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called... Now, our version has got to be, in, in italics, called to be saints. Well, of course, yes. But it's richer than that. Called saints. They are saints by calling. Whether they are saints in actual practice is another thing because he wrote to these Corinthians and said, oh, you're letting the side down bad. Look at the morals, at the immoral things that are happening among you. You see? But they were called saints. Not because of their sanctity in themselves, but because they have belonged to Christ. And so we can see that that word is here. Well, then a bit further down, or perhaps we come to the end of the, uh, near the end of this chapter, verse 24, he links it on when he says, We preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, unto the Greeks foolishness, but to them that are called. You see, he's got now three classes. He's got the Jews, he's got the Greeks, and he's got the called. Well, they may be either Jews or Greeks, but they're called out of it, you see. To the Jew, a stumbling block. 
to the Greek foolishness. And he doesn't say to the Corinthians, oh no, to the called. And then he reminds them, verse 26, you see your calling, that's where I borrowed from that verse, this series, the title, you see your calling, brethren, that how not many wise after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen. Now here's a point to, to remember. The call of God flows out of the choice of God. We shall see that again later. It's because he chose. It's because he chose, he called. You're reminded that no man taketh this office to himself, but he that is called of God. So now we've got their chosen, and he called them. I dare say you know that the Countess of Huntingdon is accredited with saying she was very glad for the use of the letter M in this verse 26. Of course, she was one of the nobility. She said it doesn't say not any noble, but not many noble. And so there were some slaves, some slaves in the Corinthian church for the apostle said to them, if you could get your freedom, of course, use it. But if not, remember you're Christ's free man. You're called. He's got you. belong to him. He knows all about it. And when he reminded the Corinthians and said, no, you're not. You're bought with a price. He was quoting the identical words that are still readable on the manumission of a slave out of Adelphi in Greece. Setting the slave free. You're bought with a price. So not many noble. And some were very ignoble. But neither none one to the other decided it was the fact that God had chosen. So I think it would do us good if we considered this question of the calling a little bit more intimately. Now, there are two reasons of themselves enough to justify our consideration. That the Apostle, in writing to the Ephesians, chapter 1, he links the calling with the hope that they had. You know that after he has given the great outline of this teaching, verses 1 to 14, he says, Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the acknowledgement of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. Now the hope is a very blessed feature in the teaching of the scriptures. It's the great outstanding difference between the believer in Ephesians and those who were strangers from the commonwealth of Israel and having no hope and without God in the world. Here are the ones that are, have a hope in front of them here are the others that are left behind that are without hope. Well, he says, don't you see? You mustn't be just indifferent with regard to this. Always as I pray that you may have a wise and revealing spirit, and in the acknowledgement of him, you'll get to know what is the hope of this calling. So that you begin to realise, if you ponder it, that every calling has its own aspect of the blessed hope. From one point of view, the hope is the same. That is to say, the personal return of Christ. But inasmuch as there are different spheres in glory, some are going to inherit a, a new earth, some are going to inherit the heavenly Jerusalem, 
Some are going to have that inheritance where Christ sits at the right hand of God, far above all heavens. So that there is a point that we should say, now what is my calling? And if I know what my calling is, then I can begin to appreciate what the hope of that calling may be. But if I'm rather distracted and I have all sorts of weird views with regard to my calling, I should have correspondingly weird views with regard to my hope. And then you see, not only is our hope influenced, but our practice, if you turn the page in Ephesians 4, he says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye walk worthy of the, now our version says vocation. Well, that's the word calling. That's the word calling. Only they've given this stress there that it's not merely a calling, but it is something to which you have become devoted. We speak about a person having a vocation. He's not merely entering a certain profession because he wants to earn his living. He hopes he'll earn his living, but even if he cannot very much, he's in it. That's the vocation. That's this word calling. He says, all seek to walk worthy of this calling. And I've reminded you before many times, I know, but it's worth another reminder, that this word worthy is suggestive of the, a pair of balances. And he says, now put the three chapters of Ephesians with all the calling in it that's now been specified. Blessed with all spiritual blessings, in heavenly places, chosen before the foundation of the world and all that. Put that in that. Now put your walk in that. And friends, that's all we've got to do, all we've got to do to live worthy of the gospel. But it's all, isn't it? That's the one thing. And then he says in the uh, verse um, 4, there is one body and one spirit. And this is the only, uh, the only one that's extended and defined that follows. Even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. See, he extends that. Links again. One hope of your calling. So you cannot walk worthy unless you know your calling and you know the hope associated with it. You'll sometimes be going this way and sometimes be going that way. You won't be able to maintain a steady course. So the more we look at it, we say this is not one of those things that we could speculate about merely. It has a great bearing upon our doctrine, our purpose, our manner of life. And then, of course, when we stress the word church, as we must, the church of the one body of Christ. That, is, that of itself is the word that means a called out people. Ecclesia is made up of two parts, ek, out of, and kaleo, the verbal form of the verb to call, a called out people. So you cannot be a member of that church or this church or anyone if there's been no calling. You don't enter it by any other door but the calling. It's a called out people. And the only one who calls is not the minister of a congregation. It's not your parents when you're a little baby. It's the Lord God himself who calls. And he, when he calls, we respond. Well now you'll quite see that if we're studying the scriptures, it's very, very wise for us, before we go too far in any portion, to just say now, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and profitable. I can read Genesis with profit, I can read the book of the Revelation with profit, but I'm neither in the book of Genesis nor in the book of the Revelation so far as my calling is concerned. 
So it's all written to guide me by parallels and uh, mottos and morals and precepts and general guidance. But if it's a matter of my calling, I ought to be sure, didn't I? And one of the ways in which this it, this can be sort of checked is to treat the Bible, the different books, as though they were letters. Now, I'm just anticipating, I spoke to Mr. Canning, and he tells me that he has practically in hand a booklet that has been designed by our friend in Preston, Miss Moore, and she has taken this sort of thought. And there are little envelopes addressed to different companies that run through the book. Now, it's not on, on sale yet, but I'm just giving you that advance so that when it comes you'll know that it may be worth getting a little booklet. And the suggestion is, before you take to yourself the contents of a letter, even in this, this world, friends, even in this life, it would be wise to read the envelope, wouldn't it? But you know what happens, don't you? You're sitting there with a marmalade jar prop, propping up the newspaper and you've got your letters there and you're ripping them through and you suddenly say, sorry, you've done, you've ripped one through. But you might not only do, you may start reading it and you get a bit distracted and you, but you say, oh, I can read it, of course, but I'm not going to do this. This is, this has been addressed to somebody else. So before ever you begin to try to put into practice this or that or the other part of scripture, do be sure that it's addressed to you. Now, of course, you may say to me, well, my name's not in the book. No, but your character is. Look, is this a character of you, Fred? Listen. That at that time, ye were without Christ. You can go back, can't you, in your history, and know full well there was a time when Christ didn't mean anything to you. And that you didn't belong to a nation who were the ones who were associated with the coming of Christ, because that's one of the characteristics of the people of Israel. To them pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants, and concerning the flesh, Christ came. But you never entertained the idea that somebody in your generation might give birth to the babe at Bethlehem. So here you are. You were without Christ, being aliens from the citizenship of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And then you read that the apostle had received a message for the Gentiles. They say, well, that suits me, that's where I am. So your name isn't there, but your character is. Well, if you will now look, just by way of, it, of um, illustration, at the epistle of James, he just gives you a nice little illustration of watching what it says on the envelope before you try to put into practice the teaching. If you don't, you might be among those friends who anoint somebody with oil and pray over them and expect them to be healed. Well, they may be healed for aught I know sometimes, but that's borrowed from the book of James. But when James wrote that, that was a part of the will of God for them. But shall we look at the envelope first and see whether we ought to take everything that's written in the book of James as though it belongs to our calling. So here we are, James. And it's also suggestive to know, of course, that if you were reading the original, you wouldn't read James at all. You'd, you'd read Jacob. Jacob. And I suppose you know enough, you wouldn't go into a furniture store and ask for a piece of James furniture, you'd say Jacobean. All right. Jacob, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes, 
which are scattered abroad, greeting. Well now, of course, I must leave that with you. If you say you're one of the twelve tribes, well, I say carry on, this epistle may be for you. I've been mistaken in the open air of being one of the lost tribes or whatnot and pelted for it. But I still believe, by the grace of God, I'm a Gentile who comes under the teaching of the Apostle Paul instead. So you see, now I can read this epistle and I can profit by its instruction, but I know full well it's dealing with a calling that belongs to another group. That's how we should, te- we should treat the scriptures. And another illustration, going back to the Old Testament, and uh, most likely you've anticipated this, it is nothing novel, the first verse of the prophet Isaiah, he also gives you a hint as to whom he is primarily addressing these words. Isaiah chapter 1. The vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Isaiah and so on. He saw these concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And then it starts, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children. And he's speaking, first of all, to that nation that he had redeemed out of Egypt. He had given the law at Sinai. He had given them wonderful promises. And they turned out like a disobedient and um, a very unthankful child. And he likened them to Sodom. And so they had to be chastised. Well now, we've got so far, I think perhaps we'd better go on with this thought that there are callings that differ. And I'm going to take an example. I meet some very fine, godly Christian people. And they themselves are convinced that they are a royal priesthood and a holy nation. And you say, where do you get that from? Well, uh, it's in the New Testament. Yes, well, all right. I find those words in the first epistle of Peter, chapter 2. But all supposing I have a look at this envelope, as I said about James. One, the first verse of Peter's epistle. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered. Now, if you were looking at the original, you would see that was the dispersion again. The dispersion. The same that James was writing to. The only thing that James is more specific, and he says to the twelve tribes scattered abroad, Peter simply says to the scattered ones. It's rather suggestive, isn't it? that James apparently never had his letter returned, not known. Because I'm told that the ten tribes were lost. And James wrote to twelve of them. And the Apostle Paul, he stood up and said, unto which our twelve tribes instantly serving God day and night hope to come. But Paul, don't you know that ten of them are lost? Is that so, he said? See? I wonder who's right, friend. Because we can't find them, we say they're lost. But God says, I know where they are. And I'm going to redeem them and bring them back from the countries to which I've scattered them. He says so. So while we say they're lost, so far as we're concerned, then let's take the work of God on our shoulders too. He knew where they were. Paul knew where they were. Peter knew where they were and addressed letters to them. So at once we say, oh, I see. I'll have to watch my step because Peter... I do know this, 
that in Paul's epistle to the Galatians, Paul went up to Jerusalem to lay before them that gospel which he preached among the heathen. And he had a long conversation with those who seemed to be somewhat. Peter and James were two of them. And when Peter and James and John saw that just as Peter had the apostleship to the circumcision, so Paul had the, the apostleship to the uncircumcision, and one had the gospel to the, to the Jew, and one had the gospel to the Gentile, they gave unto Barnabas and Saul, Paul, the right hand of fellowship, that they would remember their respective administrations and not crowd one onto the other. When Paul wrote the epistle to the Hebrews, he respected the fact that he was the apostle of the Gentiles and he never called himself an apostle to the Hebrews. He just asked them to accept a word of exhortation. He wasn't an apostle to the Hebrews. Peter was the apostle to the Hebrews and they respected one another's callings. So shall we do the same thing? We say we can read with great profit much that's in Peter. But when it comes to say in chapter 2, verse 5, ye also as, oh, um, uh, yes, as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. We might say, just quite sure about that holy priesthood. Now here again we're on very delicate ground. Nothing we say in any sense must detract from the full glory of our beloved Saviour. You understand that, wouldn't you? But when I come to face this fact, I find the Apostle Paul has written 13 epistles and the epistle to the Hebrews. As far as I'm concerned, I believe Paul wrote the epistle to the Hebrews as well. We won't argue about that. We have 13 epistles which are unquestioned and we have the epistle to the Hebrews to make 14 altogether. Well now I go through this epistle to the Hebrews and I find that we have the high priest mentioned 17 times. And I read the word priest 12 times. 29 occurrences in one epistle to the priesthood. Now do you know what I'm going to say next? I go through 13 epistles written by Paul, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Thessalonians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Timothy, Titus, Philemon, not one single reference anywhere to the priesthood. Are we going to charge Paul with a slip of memory? Or are we going to say the priesthood belongs to Hebrews? But you say to me, that you're robbing me. Why? Don't you see, if you go back to the Old Testament, the priesthood comes in with the tabernacle erected in the wilderness. But Job offered sacrifices, he wasn't a priest. Abraham offered sacrifices, he wasn't a priest. Noah offered sacrifices, he wasn't a priest. And if Christ is my head, he, can, he has all the powers of king and priest and prophet and much more beside, I've lost nothing. So I keep to the word of God and I say, a priesthood belongs to the people of Israel. 
And I've got all the blessings that they have because I belong to Christ, the head, and I'm members of his body. I've lost nothing, but I'm not going to, as it were, besmirch my calling or spoil theirs by mixing them up. So, speaking personally, I don't dictate to you. I address you as Bereans. I say, now you search and see if it's so. And if you find priesthood is in Ephesians, well, I'm wrong and you stick to it. But I'm morally certain you won't find it. I say there's a superintendence by the Holy Spirit in the choice of words that are used. And we should respect that. So, uh, while I respect these folks and I agree with them in many things, I cannot stand with them and say, yes, brother, I belong to that royal holy priesthood. I belong to that royal nation. I don't. I belong to something else which is wonderful. But I leave that to those who are thus called. Now there's one other feature that I would like to include this evening before we reach the limit of our time and that is to come to something which belongs to all callings. We've been looking at some of the distinctions, some of the differences but now we'll look at something which is basic. I refer to a passage as our start off in Romans chapter 11 verse 29. Romans 11 verse 29. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes, for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Now that has to do, in the first case, with the people of Israel. And sometimes it's been objected by some teachers that the people of Israel by the very fact of crucifying their Messiah and rejecting the testimony of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, put themselves out of court so completely that all the promises that God made in the Old Testament and some of them in the New concerning the restoration of Israel and giving them a kingdom and whatnot have all got to be now retranslated as of the church. You could go to a very fine chapel and hear a very fine preacher over in the West End who believes that is true, that there's no fulfilment, no prophecy concerning Israel's restoration now to take place. It's all retranslated as terms of the church. Uh, would you like to turn with me just to a passage? Uh, Jeremiah 23. No, not, that's, that's not Jeremiah 23. What do I want? Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. Verse 31, Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which by covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them. So God accepts the fact that they broke one covenant, but he doesn't say, well, if you broke that, that's the end of it. He says, I'm going to make a new one. And this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. Or would you say, oh no, no, that's all to do with the church. Well, I read on in this chapter. He says in verse 
35, Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and the stars by a light, before a light by night, which divided the sea when the waves are of roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If, now listen, if these ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall come, shall cease from being a nation before thee forever. Now we're at the parting of the ways. God is challenging us. He says these ordinances are going to be there till the end of time, until I pass them away. If they cease, Israel will cease from being a nation forever. Or again, thus did the Lord. If heaven above can be measured, because they didn't know about the uh, Sputniks and all that going round, but they haven't measured it yet, friends. There's a few more miles unexplored yet in space. Thus did the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, saith the Lord. That's a challenge, isn't it? Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the city shall be built to the Lord from the tower of Hananiel unto the gate of the corner. Now, this is the church. I wonder which is the tower of Hananiel and which is the gate of the corner in the church. And the measuring line shall go forth against against it upon the hill Gareth and shall compass about in Gareth. And so on, it speaks about Kidron. If this isn't literal, what are you going to do with the scriptures that speak so definitely? So we come back to Romans 11. He even says, he even says that these people are enemies. Verse 28. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies. And instead of saying, therefore God will set them aside. No, no. As touching the election, they are beloved. There's two sides to this. God has a purpose, and that purpose will not be frustrated. And if in his mercy he is pleased to forgive them their sins, and call them back to himself, and make them a kingdom of priests, and become a blessing in the earth, who is going to say him nay? So he says, But touching the election they are beloved for the Father's sakes, for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. And there the word repentance, of course, means more than our word repentance, not sorrow, but a change of mind, metanoia. Without a change of mind, God goes straight on and keeps his will, keeps his purpose, and performs his will. So I'm going to leave with you three words with regard to the calling of God. That is to say, any calling, whether it's Jew or Gentile, church or kingdom. It's immutable. There's an impossibility of its failing and it's unchangeable. Oh, well, I'm going to put them all over the little ending at the end. The immutability, the impossibility, and the unchangeability of that purpose. So, shall we get those confirmed by three passages of Scripture? Hebrews 6, 17 and 18. Hebrews 6, 17 and 18. Wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise. He's willing abundantly to show it, not merely just casually to mention it, notice, to abundantly show it. The immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. Now, the last person on earth that had any need to swear was God. 
some of us down here, we have to say, now this is true, you know, like that. Because sometimes I may think we don't speak the truth. But God, God has no need to swear by anything. What he says is true. But he's, he's stooped in order to make it sure. That we might have, oh, well then I'll read again, that by two immutable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie. Isn't it wonderful? You can get a scripture that says, some things are impossible with God. Hallelujah, friends. Or some people have magnified the power of God beyond the might of, the right of God. They make a monster of him. God is limited by right, his own right. And one thing he cannot do, he cannot lie, he cannot deny himself, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, not merely consolation, but strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that's set before us. Immutability. Then, this has been partly referred to Titus, the first verse of the epistle to Titus. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life which God promised. Ah, but it says more. In hope of eternal life which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. The promise of eternal life stands unassailable friends. There's nothing more sure than he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation. God cannot lie. And then the unchangeability. We go back to the Old Testament to Malachi, the last of the minor prophets. And we read these words. Chapter 3, verse 6. And he had a lot to say uh, to these people. Oh, he had to rebuke them so badly because of the way in which they had turned and twisted and turned round upon him and said, Wherefore, wherein have we done this? says in verse 6 of chapter 3, I am the Lord. That's referring to his name. L-O-R-D in capital letters in the authorised version indicate it's the name Jehovah. And the name Jehovah is a composite name built up of parts of the verb to become. And it's very, very difficult to try to explain it. But it seems to be it seems to indicate that whatever will be demanded of God, he will meet it. It's expanded by the epistle to the Hebrews when he said, Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. Or by the Apostle John in the book of the Revelation, he was and is and is to come. For he said, this is my name for the ages and this is my memorial unto the generations. It's the time name of God that he'll always keep his word. So he says, I am the Lord. I change not. Oh, can we go away with that this evening, friends, and say, well, if there's one thing out of the Old Testament we can take to ourselves, it's this fact, that God's word is true from the beginning, 
that he'll never go back upon his word. I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. And when we come to the promises made and are vouched for by the Spirit of God and covered by the blood of Christ and going back to that purpose that antedates time, we can also rejoice in the immutability, the impossibility, the unchangeability of the promises of God that have been made to us. Poor, alien, Gentiles, who were without Christ, without hope and without God, but now called to such close fellowship that we can hardly get some of God's people today to believe that what is written is true. May the Lord grant unto us that we may seek a definite scriptural answer to the question with which we start this little series. You see your calling, brethren. Well, if you do, thank God for it, for some Christians don't. And then realise there's an attached responsibility as you see your calling, so by the mercy of God seek to walk worthy of such a calling.